Thanks for listening to What's the Big Idea, a class by J.R. Foresteros. Let me know what you think at Facebook, Twitter, or my website, jrforesteros.com. Enjoy the class. Yay! Yeah! That's right. I, I mean, I went to graduate school with a guy who, in real life, without a hint of irony, was a Thor worshiper. Yeah, he had a hammer necklace, a whole bit. So. Right. He did not like Thor like I like Batman. He liked Thor like I like Jesus. So. Um, yeah. 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 Paganism is actually sort of on the rise in uh, most Western cultures. Yeah. So various different pagan gods from Thor, Odin, or Freya in the Norse mythology to uh, some different Native American gods, or you know, even some of the Greek pantheon. In uh, in fact, in like Scandinavia, what we would call Scandinavia, uh, yeah, paganism is is bigger. Maybe at this point, bigger than Christianity, because those are primarily secular countries where you know they were totalitarian for a while and different stuff like that. So, yeah, that's. Uh, I was just telling telling this group that I went to graduate school with a guy who worshipped Thor. Uh, so Thor, Thor. With the hammer? A lot, see, well, a lot of pagans, um, they hold to, like, seasonal festivals. So they'll do Samhain, which is what, you know, most of the seasonal festivals Christians stole at one point or another and turned them into Christian festivals. So Easter is called Easter because there is a goddess named Oster, who was a fertility goddess, and so in her worship you did rabbits and eggs, which were symbols of fertility, and at some point Christians were like, new life, Jesus rose from the dead, worship, you know. I never did, I'm just trying that, to yeah, that's, got yeah. and Right. Eggs. Well, and this is also why Easter doesn't, this is why the celebration of Jesus' resurrection doesn't fall with Passover, right? Unless, except by happy coincidence occasionally. Even though we know that Jesus was crucified either on the day of Passover or the day before Passover, depending on, you know, the gospel accounts. Um, and so you would think that we, I mean, we know when Passover is, it's in the Jewish calendar. It had, you can look it up on all of your desk calendars every year. It says this is when, but we don't keep Easter there. We keep it on the first Sunday after the first new moon after the spring equinox, because that's when the pagan Oster festival was. Um, so... Yeah, that's why. So, because because it's it's on a it's on a it's on a uh, seasonal pagan calendar. Ha- Halloween is Samhain. It's a pagan holiday festival for the dead. Um, we were like, uh, dead saints, All Saints Day, and so then All Saints Day had an Eve, so that was All Hallows Eve, Halloween, you know. But yeah, uh, Christmas. Uh, Jesus was actually probably born in September or October. Uh, but again, there was a Yule festival, a uh, pagan Yule festival, um, and Thor worship is actually where we get Christmas trees from. You would hang the entrails of your defeated enemies on Christmas trees, on, on evergreen trees as a sacrifice to Thor. And that's where tinsel and stuff comes from. I mean, it's, yeah, <laughs> actually, okay. I'll give you a little rant that I always love to give around Christmas time. The only legitimately Christian thing about Christmas is Santa Claus. Because he's based on Saint Nicholas, who was a Christian. He was a follower of Jesus. He gave presents to people, and 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 so when I hear Christians who are like, "Jesus, not Santa Claus," I'm like, "Stop what you're doing! You're taking the only legitimately Christian aspect of this holiday. You know, Yule logs, wreaths, Christmas trees, all that stuff is pagan. Santa Claus is ours. Like, leave him in Christmas, please." <laughs> so, yeah. So, and and actually, in all in all seriousness, I mean, that's all that's all true stuff. But in all seriousness. A lot of pagans, if, if you know any pagans or if you have any relationships with pagans, they actually are very distrustful of Christianity because of this long history that we have of stealing their stuff. And yeah, so you can you'll actually find if you if you have a relationship with any pagan persons, they they they're very suspicious of Christianity in particular. Uh, so you just have to tread very carefully um, and kindly and with a lot of love and compassion for assure them that you're not going to come into their house and steal all their stuff. Uh, so, yeah. But, yeah. So, so that, that all started with what we were talking about all the pagan gods last week and could Thor be real? And there are, yes, there are people who today worship 
all kinds of gods. As far as I know, there could be people who still worship Baal and Marduk and all of that. Doesn't so. that know why the Jews celebrate eight days of giving presents over Hanukkah? Because it's uh, I don't know when the gift-giving part of Hanukkah started, but I mean, Hanukkah is originally a celebration of the, yeah, I don't know about that, actually. I don't know when gift-giving started in the Hanukkah tradition. I mean, we give presents on lots of holidays because who doesn't like to get presents, right? But uh, <laughs> it is more particularly associated with certain holidays than others, so um, I'm curious, uh, Besides, you know, the possibility that Thor could be real, uh, what else about last week particularly stuck out to you or something that you were kind of chewing on throughout the week this week? Was there anything else that really uh, you just found really interesting or compelling as before we move into the homework? Or confusing? I guess we could go there, too. I forgot all the rest. <laughs> <laughs> that was the big one? <laughs> uh, you know, we talked, about, we talked about the sacrificial system, right, and how that was all, it was all kind of... Uh, it worked around the assumption that the table was the center of the culture. And so when you were bringing sacrifices, you were actually either giving God a meal or you were even uh, with the peace offering, you were sharing in the meal with God. So you would take the rest of the animal home. And when you would feast with your family, uh, that was like that was you sharing in God's table. And that would that would, all of the temple system kind of worked on that metaphor of the table because that's how the ancient world worked. Everything was organized around the table. Who you ate with was all about uh your social circle and your social standing and all of that. So, uh, so they just they, they took that same sort of symbolic universe of the table and imported it into the religion, and that's that's why the temple worked the way it did. So, things stuck with me a little bit was I had never really considered heavily that before Abram uh, was going to sacrifice Isaac. Mm-hmm. And I never really thought back then. He didn't know God, you know, the way we kind of know him, yeah. of God, his nature. And then it was just, oh, okay. Yeah, that's things typical. Mm -hmm. I guess you would probably ask that since you're a God. Mm -hmm. But he hadn't got to know him yet. Yeah. Because I always pictured it as this, you know, devastating news that he struggled with, but yet he, you know, he was strong and muscled through it. There was almost more of a fear of, oh my gosh, I'm going to kill this kid because I'm not going to have Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 and it's not to say, right, that he didn't still struggle with it, right, that, I mean, there's no, I don't know that there's ever been a point in human history where people are like, oh, I kill a kid, no big deal, like, whatever, you know, but, yeah, that it does reframe kind of how he must have been approaching that event, right, and, and then also, on the other side of it, how it totally reframes what we understand happened in that moment, right, that this is, this is God showing Abraham who he is, and what kind of God he is, and most importantly, that he's fundamentally a different kind of God than all of these other gods. Which, which, yeah, he. Why would he have assumed that before that? You know. Would it be if God was just like, do this, or you're going to die in a worldwide flood? Be like, okay. <laughs> yeah. When you think about too, I mean, take that particular with Adam and Eve, right? You have this clear intimacy in the garden where they walk with God, God speaks with them. I mean, we, we don't have any indication of how long there was between the creation of the man and the woman and then the exile from the garden. It could have been the next day, but it doesn't seem like it was. I mean, it seems like there was a, a routine and a pattern, you know, that's being talked about in the scriptures. And so, but by the time we get to Noah, which is, you know, several generations later, it's clear that that, that in, not just the intimacy has been lost, but almost entirely the, the character and the nature. I mean, there's one person in the entire populated earth that has any sense. Right. Yeah, we just. But but either way, like that that was lost. That was I mean that that intimacy, that knowledge of who God is, that knowledge of God's character, that that was gone. You know, 
almost entirely gone by the time of Noah. And then even that, if you kind of like, you know, blank slate, start over with this family that's faithful, it, again, it doesn't take very long after that for by the time we get to Abram where they just don't know who this guy is. They don't know who this God is. You know, they, they maybe know his name. A lot of them don't seem to. So, yeah. And so God has to do this process of sort of uh, reintroducing himself to, and, and actually uh, some of the prophets uh, speak very romantically of God. They, they actually use this more of God in, uh, with Israel in the wilderness after Exodus and that 40 years where, you know, they're wandering. But uh, they talk about it as a romancing. That God is romancing his people. That he's, uh, they, you know, they, some of the translations say woo. You know, he's wooing them. And, and you kind of get that kind of a sense with Abraham, too. You know, that he's, he doesn't know who this God is. He doesn't know why he's fundamentally different from all of these other gods. And God is slowly taking him through these experiences where he's, he's understanding, he's learning, he's coming to know this God and why this God is worthy of worship and why this God is worthy of his trust and his obedience uh, and all of that. And it, you see the same thing with Israel in, in the wilderness. You see the same thing with us and our relationship with God, right? I mean, you see the same thing with the disciples. You know, Jesus doesn't say, take this theological test and we'll see if you're good enough to follow me and do you believe that I'm the son of God and I've come to die for your sins and raise him through, you know, I mean, he just says, hey, you want to come? And they're like, yep. And as far as they know, he's just some teacher, right? And then they keep listening and watching and slowly but surely they start to realize oh, this guy isn't just a teacher. Maybe he's a prophet. This guy isn't just a prophet. He must be more than, you know, you see this gradual awareness, even in the first disciples, right? It's kind of fun. It's kind of a fun thought experiment. You know, when did Peter get saved? Tough question to answer, you know? It certainly wasn't when he got out of the boat and followed Jesus because there was no, I mean, he didn't know anything about anything at that point. He certainly didn't understand he was the Christ. He was the son of God. That comes later, so... Um, if anything, that should give us hope when we are confused, when we are, do wonder, when we struggle with doubt, that uh, we're not the first people to do that, and that God is a God who is a God of process and is, is willing to woo us and, and, and take us through experiences where we come to know him. Uh, so, good. Anything else specifically about last week you guys want to talk about before we move forward? Okay, I want to spend a little bit of time in the homework. Uh, we're going to skip Matthew 9 for a moment because that's kind of where I want to begin the stuff we're going to talk about this week. But I want to look at Isaiah 1 with you. Uh, I asked you to look at Isaiah 1, 10 through 31. We're not going to go through all of that, but we're going to look at a little bit, especially at the beginning there. Um, because this, what I asked you to look at uh, is the relationship between obedience and sacrifice. Because what we saw last week in this temple system was that people tended to get caught up in the ritual. They tended to think that as long as they're killing animals in the right way, that everything's fine. And what God kept saying over and over and over, particularly through the prophets like Isaiah and Hosea, who we looked at last week, is that killing animals isn't the point of what we're doing here in this temple, right? That, that if, if all you're doing is slaughtering animals and lighting them on fire, uh, that, that's actually a totally unnecessary thing. God doesn't need sacrifices. Again, very much unlike the pagan gods who needed the sacrifices to be fed, Right, God was like, I made all the animals. If I need more animals, I can just make some more. Uh, I don't, I don't need this. What I need from you is obedience. What I need from you is a relationship with you. Uh, that's what I want. That's the point of these sacrifices, right? The point of the sacrifices is to remind you that you're my children and that you're welcome at my table, and that there are consequences for sin, all, all kinds of things. But the point of the sacrificial system was for you to go out and act justly, act rightly, act like God, uh, not you know, a pile of dead animals. So you have that here in Isaiah, and I just wanted to read through. I'm going to read a little bit of it for you. Uh, and I, then I want to hear kind of what you thought about, because I asked you, if God were saying this to us today, if God were using this kind of, uh, or talking to us today and trying to communicate the same message, you know, what language would he use? How would he speak to us today, us people who follow God, who meet regularly together to worship? We don't do it in a temple. We don't do it by lighting animals on fire on an altar, right? So how, you know, what do we do? And how would God talk about that? So God says, listen to the Lord. Well, this is Isaiah speaking for God. Listen to the Lord, you leaders of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, people of Gomorrah. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. Now, again, those are, for the pagans, those are the, the, as the good food right there, right? Uh, I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who ask you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? 
Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and your Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they're all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They're a burden to me. I can't stand them. When you lift your hands up in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Okay. So that's pretty harsh, right? Um, was there anything in particular in there that stuck out to you as I was reading that? Any any particular phrase or, or metaphor that you were like, whoa? The disgust me thing is pretty Okay. 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 Yeah. So if God were God were coming to us today and was similarly disgusted with us, uh, how would he how would he talk about that? Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's great. What else? Sure, like what? Yeah, your singing sounds like nails on a chalkboard. <laughs> what else? Not. Yeah. <laughs> totally hypothetical. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But you know, you do, and you know, so I can see him. Mm -hmm. you know, give me that time, like, mm -hmm. focus, and put your effort into that, not mm -hmm. like I'm here because I'm supposed to be here. Mm -hmm. I want to show my kids an example. Because it's not about the ritual, right? right? Yeah. I've gotten pretty mean with this before. I've, I've, I. One of the things that I enjoy doing is a sort of a spiritual practice is trying to do that like say if, if Isaiah was walked in our building today you know how would he deliver this message from the Lord because it, it wouldn't be in the same metaphors right you wouldn't be talking about blood of bulls and goats and all that because we'd be like yeah we don't like that either super <laughs> gross um, so you know I, I think about as you would say things like you know tell your preachers to shut their mouths because they're just yapping for people to hear right um, when you pray it puts me to sleep you know, th those kinds of because that's that's what we do we sing songs? We worship. We greedy. You know, when you turn around to shake each other's hands, you're getting blood all over each other, right? Which is a metaphor he uses in here. He says, when you lift your hands up, they're covered in blood, right? The blood of the of the oppressed. And so he's. I mean, this is how we can think about this. And and it, and it makes me when when I put it in that kind of language, it makes it a lot more uh, uh, near. You know, a lot nearer to me. Uh, imminent. That was the word I was looking for. Uh, because all of a sudden, yeah. I mean, I don't whatever sacrificing. I mean, I get what a sacrifice is, and yeah. But like when we start talking about in terms of singing, singing songs together and preaching and praying together, like the things that we actually do, all of a sudden I go, well, are the things that we're doing disgusting to God? Because, the, I mean, if they thought they were doing the right things, this is what the Bible told them to do. And they were doing it really, really well. But God comes along and says, you got to knock that off. 
you're just wasting my time. You're disgusting me. It's right. And I mean, he tells them specifically, right? Um, your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of you. I mean, we know what they're not doing, right? And it's again that they are. They've become. They've turned inward, and they've somehow begun to think that they're special. That God chose them because they're better than everyone else, and that all they need to do is take care of themselves and not worry about anyone else, and they'll be fine. Go through the motions. Check the boxes, right? Bring the cow in and get it sacrificed every now and again. And uh, and and they're not actually. They're not actually being who God created them to be, right? They're not living the way that we were created to. They're not, they're not being the image of God in the world. And so God's like, look, if you're not going to do that, stop killing stuff. It doesn't make any difference. And we could turn around and say, if you're not going to do that, quit coming to church on Sundays. Quit. Just stay home. No one wants you here. All of a sudden we get real uncomfortable. It's like, oh, you can't say that to people. But that's, I mean, that's exactly what the prophets came in saying, which is why they weren't so popular, right? Um, but God's being really serious. He's like, I don't, I don't, God, God doesn't like ritual for the sake of ritual, right? God doesn't make rules just because he's a type A person who loves rules, right? All of these are oriented around life, that, that, that Sabbath shalom that we find at the end of Genesis 1 and the beginning of Genesis 2, when everything is very good in the world, it's how God that's that's the point of all the rules and the regulations and the way and all of that. And so God says, if you're not working towards that, quit pretending like you are, because no amount of no amount of songs that you sing, no amount of sermons that you listen to is going to make you do that. You're either going to decide to be my people or you're not. So decide to be my people or quit. Just quit. Just knock off. So that sets us up really well to talk about Jesus. Uh, by the way, before we get there, I, I did want to address the last homework question, which was Mark 12, 28 through 31. This is the great commandment, right, where they ask. So this was a famous debate in Jesus's day that, you know, that there's something like six. There's over 600 commandments. There's over 600 individual laws in the Torah in the first five books and what the Jewish people call the law. So it was a pretty common debate. You know, what's the one? What if you had to choose? You know, they all kind of agreed the Ten Commandments were like the ten. Right. But is there like a one? Can we get it all the way down to one commandment that if we could just keep this commandment, this would be it. Right. And this is the debate. They would kick it around and they would love they would love to debate it back and forth. And so it's not surprising that as Jesus gains prominence as a teacher, someone is inevitably going to ask him that question, because that was kind of one of the big the big questions you would ask. Right. So the lawyer comes to Jesus and says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gives one of the standard answers, one of the ones that everyone's like, good, you know, good answer, man. Yeah, good. And that's the. The Shema, the prayer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's, uh, it's in Deuteronomy. Uh, Jewish people say that prayer every day, right? And uh, so it, everyone's like, you know, you can get the, oh, yeah. And then Jesus goes, and the second is like it. And they didn't ask him for two. Asked him for one. <laughs> but, you know, Jesus, he's not going to do what they say. So he says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the greatest commandment. He says all the law and the prophets, which is what we would call the Torah. And then the, the, in the Jewish Bible, it's divided up into three pieces. Uh, the law, which is the Torah, and then the prophets. And then there's one piece called the writings, which is like uh, all the poetic books, like Psalms and Proverbs and uh, Song of Songs is in there. First, Second Chronicles are in there. Esther's in there. And so it's like other stuff. Uh, then the prophets is like Joshua, Judges, uh, the first, second Samuel, first, second Kings, and then what we would consider the prophetic books, Daniel and, uh, or I think actually Daniel might be in the writings, but uh, Ezekiel and uh, Isaiah. Well, yeah, and, so, and then the 12, the, what we call the minor prophets are all in one book, and they call it the book of the 12. So they just put them all into one, and uh, yeah, so all those. So anyway, it, we're not sure that by Jesus' time that the writings were a coherent unit yet. That, you know, they were still kind of in and out. But what we know from Jesus' own words here is that the, those first two, the Law and the Prophets, were considered authoritative scripture. And so Jesus says the whole Law and the Prophets can be summed up in this one commandment. You know, all of the Old Testament, what, what he considered the Old Testament at that time, uh, what he considered the Bible at that time, right? The whole Bible can be summed up in love God and love other people. And you see, you can, if you back up to what Isaiah was saying, you can see why that's not, you can't say, well, which one is it? Because for Jesus, if you're not loving other people, then you're not loving God. Because to love God is to enact justice. It's to act justly. And you can't, you can't do that when you're harming other people, when you're not acting lovingly to them, when you're not caring for them the way you would care for yourself. If you're not doing that, then you don't really love God. You can say you love God. You can go through all the motions that look like you love God, but you don't actually love God. 
Because if you did, then you would act the way God created you to act, which entails loving others, loving your neighbor as yourself. Uh, so that's why Jesus Jesus puts those together and he says, you, you know, that that's the one great commandment. And if you can get that down, that's the whole Bible. That's the whole, that's everything. That's what you were created for. That's it. So, so that's kind of Jesus' like manifesto, right? That's his his whole ministry in one. That's what that's what he came to announce. That's what he came to teach. So let's look then. I gave this to you as homework, but we're going to spend some good time in it today because I think it's really it's a, a, just a perfect little look at where all these images of Jesus' temple and the table as the center of everything all kind of come together, and you see it illustrated really clearly in the life of Jesus. And that is in when he calls Matthew the tax collector to be his disciple. So Matthew 9, you have this on your paper. Uh, Matthew 9, it says, as Jesus was walking along, like he does, he saw a guy that he decided he wanted to follow him. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Now, we need to stop there for a moment because this is where the table really comes into being. Now, typically... My guess is that a guy like Matthew would never in a million years have invited Jesus, a respectable up-and-coming teacher, to his house for a party, for a feast. for a Because remember, the table's public, right? Everyone would be able to see who is at Matthew's party. Matthew's a tax collector. That means he's like a disreputable person. He's not well-liked except by obviously other tax collectors and other disreputable people, right? And so he would not dream that a respectable teacher would accept an invitation to his house. And it would be even more shameful for him to extend an invitation and have it rejected. So he, he probably would not have ever done this, right? Except that Jesus said, hey, come be my follower, right? He basically invited Matthew into his circle. And so Matthew decides, well, this is a, of course he wants to celebrate, right? This is a big deal. So he's going to throw a feast. So of course he invites Jesus and his disciples. And then he invites, you know, his friends, <laughs> like the only other people that are going to come to a party at Matthew's house, all these other tax collectors and sinners. And for, you know, in Matthew's mind, for whatever reason, Jesus agrees. You know, he still probably can't really make sense of this, but I mean, the guy invited him to be a part of his circle, so he's, he's going to do it. So when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Right? Because Jesus is breaking social codes. He's, he's eating at tables where he shouldn't be eating. Right? He's spending time with people that he shouldn't be seen with, people that he shouldn't be in public with. He's feasting with people. Right? <laughs> I love that they go to his disciples, and Jesus turns around and is like, well, if you want to know the answer, I'll tell you. Um, he, he doesn't leave it to the disciples. He goes and, and interjects. When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. And then he added, and here he quotes from the Hosea passage that we ended last week with. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not ask for sacrifices. For I've come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Okay. So there's so many funny things about this. And by funny, I mean kind of like, ooh, Jesus is getting a little bit spicy here. Um, because he goes, again, he has these, these hyper-religious people, right? The most religious people in the area, the, the most respected Bible scholars and teachers. I mean, we would, we would look at him as like, you know, seminary professors or pastors or, you know, whatever, whatever. Uh, group of very religious people you want to think of to, in today's standards, right? And they're basically kind of calling him out. And it's all happening in public, right? And they're basically, I mean, they're basically shaming not only Jesus, but all these people that he's partying with and saying, Why, what's he, he has, they're basically essentially, he has no business being over there. And by associating with them, he's siding with them, right? He's, he's lowering himself. He's not raising them to his level. He's lowering to their level. And so Jesus turns around and he's like, hey, smarty guys, I got a Bible verse for you. Why don't you go look it up and tell me what it means? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, what does he mean by that? I desire. Mm-hmm. Um, he just wants to be in relationship. With who? With all mankind. 
Well, and 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 again, keep in mind the framework that, that Isaiah and Hosea have given us, right? Is that what ends up happening with religious people is we pack our ritual and our system around ourselves, and it ends up cutting us off from the people that we were actually supposed to connect with, right? And, and what ends up happening is we end up prizing the ritual and the system over relationships with people. And we end up excluding and casting out and ignoring and despising, right? Instead of embracing and welcoming and loving and challenging and, you know, all, but instead of being in a relationship. So we end up, we, and this is exactly what the Pharisees had ended up doing. They didn't start out that way. No one, no one starts out that way, right? But over over a hundred years or so, their their way had gotten corrupted to where what mattered to them was not that there were all of these people who felt like there was no one that they were good enough to be around except each other. They were right there. I mean, right? They were all right in the same. I mean, they could hear each other apparently, right? But they were so caught up in their rules and in their religion that they were ignoring those people. And Jesus was like, well, guys, that's not what this is about. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Right? Love God and love people. If you're not doing one, you're not doing the other. So you're not loving God. You think you are, but you're not. I think I like the way James puts it. We're not to show favoritism yeah. because it's a sin. Yeah. And we are lawbreakers if we do show favoritism. Mm -hmm. So that means we have to go to all people. Yeah. We accept all people. Mm -hmm. And not, I mean, again, what's what's important to notice here is there's no there's no condoning, there's no right, 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 right. And and Jesus's Jesus's words are, are I mean, I, I wish we could hear the tone because I'm sure there's like they're heavy with sarcasm at the beginning there when he's like, I didn't come to I didn't come to to the healthy, I came to the sick because. There's never a point in the Gospels where we think that Jesus might think the Pharisees are healthy, right? The problem is the problem is that they're they're blinded to uh, to their problems. Yeah, and and if you if you if you read the story of the man born blind in John nine in the homework a couple of weeks ago, that's the big irony of that story is the guy because uh, in that story Jesus heals the guy but then leaves before he ever sees Jesus. I mean he, he spits and makes mud and he puts it on this guy's eyes totally unrequested by the way, right? As far as this guy knows, he's just sitting there, you know, hoping someone's going to throw some points his way. And all of a sudden, someone's putting mud on his eyes that he probably made from spit. And then he's like, go find the pool of Siloam and wash it. I don't know how he's supposed to find it because he's blind, right? But he now he's got spit mud in his face, so he's probably going to do it. So he goes, and by the time he washes his eyes out and, and realizes that he can see, Jesus is nowhere to be found. Right, and so then it causes this big debate about who is who healed him, and it was the Sabbath day, and he he's sinning from healing on the Sabbath, and there's all this big controversy, and uh, it ends up by the time you get to the end of the story that this guy, he, uh, there's this really cool progression. If you go back and reread through it, or if you caught this the first time through, uh, they they start out and they say who healed you, and he says it was this man Jesus, and then a few verses later they ask him something. He says, well, I mean, he must be a prophet because God doesn't listen to the prayers of sinners. And so he's gone from just Jesus the man to Jesus the prophet, and then by the end of it, he's saying, this is the Son of God. And so there's this clear progression from a guy who has never seen Jesus, a guy who was literally blind and is still, like, figuratively blind because he's never, again, he's never laid eyes on Jesus, and yet all these people who have seen Jesus, who are sighted, are blind as bats. They can't see what's right in front of their face, which is that God is, like, making people see, and who cares if it's the Sabbath? Because God is making people see, and that's amazing. And, and they're mad for some crazy reason. Like, how jacked up does your religion have to be that you're mad when people get healed? You know, because they didn't do it because you didn't ask your permission first or something. I don't, I don't know. I, that, that's, that's a great example of the system being prioritized over the people. You know, and Jesus calls them out for that in other places. It's like, if your ox falls in a ditch on the Sabbath, you're going to pull it out. You don't want me to heal this guy? I don't understand, you guys. Like, your hypocrisy is insane. Um, but he, I mean, he keeps leaning. Uh, so what is helpful in all of this, one, it's a nice demonstration of Jesus in the table and 
what it looks like for God to come to sinners, for the temple to come to those who are unholy, right? But the reality is, this is a painful reality for me, probably for most of you as well, that if you consider yourself even marginally like a good church person who comes to church faithfully and whatever, you probably would have been a Pharisee in the, old, in the old days, right? Because that's who they were. They were the religious people. I mean, and, and that's that's me. I'm I'm a professional religious person. And so it freaks me out when I get all worked up about how insane the Pharisees are because I have to I have to examine myself and say, well, I am like deep in the system, right? I mean, literally for me personally, I my livelihood depends on the system. And so I have to be incredibly careful, incredibly careful that I am not prioritizing the system over people, that I'm not allowing my preferences and my rituals and the things that make me feel connected to God, right, get in the way of other people connecting to God. Uh, and that's that's challenging. Because, I, I mean, again, if it were easy, we'd have less Pharisees. But but it seems like every religion has them. Uh, every every era in human history has, has them. It's a, natu- it's a natural thing that happens in religion is that even even the best intentioned of people can end up getting caught up in the system and end up working to support the system instead of working to help the people the system's about. Um, so. Uh, of course, we can't, we can't spend too much time talking about Jesus and table without talking about communion, right? Because uh, Jesus ate everywhere he went, um, in fact, uh, there's a, at one point, apparently, there were complaints about him that, that he was being called a glutton. Uh, they, he, he, again, one of the times he's arguing with Pharisees, uh, they complain that he's not fasting, like John the Baptist's disciples were fasting. They're like, well, John fasted, and you don't fast. Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, okay, look, y'all, when John the Baptist was on the scene, you called him crazy. Now that I'm here, you call me a glutton and a drunkard. What's going to make you happy? You know, and so again, he's getting at them that you know they're never going to be happy because basically anyone who challenges them. But but apparently, again, apparently Jesus liked to party with sinners so much that there were rumors that he was a glutton and a drunkard, and um, that they would that was that was what they, his his enemies would say about him. Like, oh, all he, all he ever does is go to parties, you know, and hang out with all those sinners. Uh, he's, he's just drunk. Um, yeah, I think he just knew how to have a good time for real. I mean that without an ounce of irony. I think Jesus was a blast. And I think there's a reason that everyone, except the stuffy religious people, liked him. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't think he was a glutton and a drunkard, but it's interesting that that was what his enemies would choose to, you know, pick at him for. And and he throws it right back in their face like it does everything else. He's like, well, you know, you weren't happy with someone who fasted all the time. You're not happy with someone who feasts all the time. Like, just go be miserable somewhere else and leave me to my friends. You know? So... Um, so there's a. It's interesting. We're, we're gonna we're gonna do a lot more with communion over the next couple of weeks as we're as we're sort of winding this class down. But it's interesting that in the communion meal, this is the meal. I mean, we all know what communion is, right? This is the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. It was part. It was it was set inside of the Passover meal. So they're they're doing one of the big ritual celebrations. It's the celebration of their freedom from Egypt, which we're gonna be talking about next week. Um, but in the middle of all this, he takes one of the uh, one of the bread uh, dishes, and then he takes one of the cups of wine. There's multiple cups, and multiple times you pass bread around and all that. And just in the middle of it, he takes some of them, and he does this. He does this new ritual with his this, with his followers that, in the wake of his death and resurrection, his followers continued at his command. You know, he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, "This is my body." He gives them wine and he says, "Drink this. This is my blood." And then he said, "As often as you do this, remember me." Right? And so we get this we get this ritual that we have coming down to today that we still do um, sitting behind me here, right? Uh, where we are called to remember Jesus's death and resurrection through this meal. Uh, now there's there's a couple of observations uh, that I think are interesting about the fact that Jesus gives a meal to remember him by, um, and then I want to go into what happens uh, early in Christian history when people don't know how to do it right. First of all. Uh, we call this a sacrament in the Church of the Nazarene. This is one of the two that we have. A sacrament is a real fancy church word, but it basically is a means of grace. What it means, what, what a sacrament is, is it's a physical embodiment of God's love for us. So baptism is the other sacrament, right? Which is again a very physical action. You get in water and you go underwater, and water covers you, and you come up and you're dripping. I mean, it's you. You can't like spiritually get baptized. It's you know you get it's it's a very physical action, right? Um, 
communion is the other one. It's food. You, you take bread. It's kind of squishy, styrofoamy bread, but you take it. You dip it in uh, juice or, or you drink out of a cup, depending on the, you know, several different ways to do it. But you eat and you drink physical actions that we do all the time, right? Multiple times every day. Uh, and, and it's interesting that Jesus gave us a physical action to remember him by because it's, it, it, there's one thing that it does is, is it affirms the basic goodness of creation. It says that, that this physical world and our physical bodies, they weren't accidents, they weren't afterthoughts, that, that God intended for us to be physical beings and that one of, a way that we worship God and a way that we experience God is through physical actions, eating and drinking. It's not just... It's not just, okay, we're going to sit quiet and think real hard for a few minutes because we're minds, right? I mean, we, we eat and drink together. Um, and, and so that's an affirmation of, of our bodies. And that, again, that was important. Another thing that the communion meal does is it really pushes against the tendency that we have, at least in our culture, towards individualism. Uh, you cannot eat a communion meal on your own. Uh, in fact, the word communion comes from the same root as community. Right? with other people. And in the early church, this was done, uh, we actually, you see this a lot in 1 Corinthians, which is where we're going next, but the way they worshipped was they met in houses, because they, they didn't have nice buildings like we do today, right? so they met at someone's house, and there was always a meal involved, because again, meals, public feasting, right? They would feast together, and during their meal, they would stop and take out some bread and get some wine, and they would do communion in the middle of their meal together just like Jesus did in the, in the first place, right? And they, and they called it a love feast. This is how the early church, and then they would, you know, have teaching and some words of prophecy and uh, some singing. They would sing some songs together and all, all kinds of things that we would probably recognize a little bit more familiar, but it was done in this home context around the table. And it was all sort of wrapped around the communion. So uh, what I want to do is read, you have this on your sheet, but I'm going to read it uh, for you. You can listen or you can read along, whatever you want to do. And then uh, in your groups, I gave you some questions there to, to talk through together. Uh, so this is the church at Corinth. They're one of the more dysfunctional early churches that we have. Uh, pastors love the book of 1 Corinthians because, like, no matter how frustrated you are by things at your church, you're like, oh, it could be worse. Um, so uh, they, there's all kinds of things going on. I mean, you'll get a little taste of that, uh, pun intended, here in this particular passage. So uh, let's read it together, and then I'll put you guys in your groups, and you can work through the questions. Paul's saying, In the following instructions, I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you have God's approval, uh, so that, the, that you who have God's approval will be recognized. Paul's also very sarcastic. Uh, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body, which was given for you. Do this to remember me. In that same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat the bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So anyone who eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. Okay, so that's 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 30. Uh, I gave you three questions there. Go ahead and get into your table groups. Um, work through those questions, kind of kick around uh, what's going on in that passage, and then I'll... Uh, Probably about five minutes, seven minutes or so, we'll come back together and discuss that.
Okay, you're going to be back in your groups very shortly, so if you don't want to move, you don't have to. We're just going to review the answers you guys gave, um, but you know, if you're not sitting at the table you want to write, I understand. That's fine. Do whatever you want. You're adults. Um, so it's interesting that we can discern pretty easily in this passage that there's divisions among the church, right? That, that when they're coming together to worship and they're meeting around this very public table, things aren't uh, things aren't right in Paul's view. And, and I heard all you guys talking about it. One of the clear distinctions is between the rich and the poor. It seems that the rich are beginning the, the meal before the poor can arrive. Uh, and again, that's you know not too surprising because even today, people who have more wealth tend to have more leisure time or at least more flexible schedules and things like that, right? So it's not surprising that the, the, the wealthier people, particularly in a society that was even, it really didn't even really have a middle class at all, that this would be the case, that the slaves and the very poor uh, are going to be getting there late. And, and it seems that the, the rich are going ahead and feasting without the poor there, right? That, that they're, and you, and you can imagine the shame that one of the poor persons would feel. They already are probably feeling self-conscious, particularly if, the, if these divisions have been expressed for some time because they're, they're meeting with these people who are much wealthier than they are, uh, probably are perfumed and bathed and, and things like that that they don't have the luxury of access to. Uh, and they're showing up, and this big public feast that they were supposed to be a part of is winding down. And everyone's sort of saying, oh, sorry, there's you know nothing left for you. All the wine's gone. All the bread's gone. There's nothing else. And, and so you can imagine the, the division that that would reinforce and the shame that that would uh, reinforce. And Paul is taking them to task really hard and saying that when you do that, you're making a mockery out of this table. You're, you're undermining everything that Jesus died for. You're undermining everything that you're called to be. So it's no wonder that some of you are suffering for this, right? Some of you are getting ill and some of you even died because, because you're making a mockery out of who God is and what this table represents. Um, so what does it mean in this passage to dishonor the body of Christ? I mean, what, what's actually, uh, what is Paul focused on here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That that in fact, instead of the communion meal bringing the church together, it's dividing them apart, right? And Paul says that's what that's what dishonors. Now the reason I bring that up is because I grew up in a church where every time we did communion, which was like once a quarter or something like that, so infrequently enough that it was always a surprise. Um, the pastor would always get up and say, "Now I'm paraphrasing loosely, but he would say, sit there and think about all the bad things you did.'" And confess them, because if you if you have unconfessed sin in your heart, you bring it to the communion table, you're going to get sick and die. And I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> um, but, but what he was saying was that, that that's what it means. What it means to take communion in an unworthy fashion is for you to not, you know, we don't, the phrase we use is get right with God. You have to get right with God. So we would sit there in our own private little space and reflect silently and pray and and ask for forgiveness. I would, I would, man, I would like list off stuff I wasn't even sure was a sin or not, just in case, you know. Um, <laughs> um, before that tray got, we pat, they passed the trays. And so I, was, I made sure to sit a few rows back so I had more time just in case, you know. Um, and listen, there's nothing at all wrong with a serious personal examination before you approach the community table, right? I mean, really taking inventory of your relationship with God and how, how faithfully you've been walking or not during the week at leading up to the, it, it's a great opportunity to do that. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. What Paul is talking about is a church that's divided and, 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 and people who are disconnected from each other and, and reinforcing behaviors that continue to, to uh, or they're, they're participating in behaviors that are continuing to reinforce those divisions. Right. And he's saying that is taking communion in an unworthy manner. It's, it's taking communion and making it division instead. Instead of community, it's divisive. And that's the that's the fundamentally the opposite of what it's supposed to be. That's why I think, uh, Steve, I think you said over here, just like those bull sacrifices, right? You're just doing a thing someone told you to do one time, and you're totally missing the point, you know? And I, Paul doesn't quite say it like this, but he's basically saying, you know, it's just bread and – it's just crackers and juice at that point. You know, there's nothing – there's nothing mystical or grace-filled about it, the way you're doing it. It's profane. It's not sacred. It's not beautiful. It's disgusting. 
Shame, and I mean, shame, shame on, you know, shame on you. That's what he's doing. That's the sense you get in that letter, right? Shame. And so I, it's important for us. And again, I keep going back to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about sacrificing, right? He says, if you bring a sacrifice and you realize you have something against a brother or sister, put your sacrifice down, go get right with your neighbor, and then come back and worship. Right? Because again, the, the ritual does, there's no, there's nothing magical about killing an animal or about eating some juice and crackers. Right? They don't have magic powers. It's just juice and crackers. Right? What makes it beautiful and mystical and meaningful is when you are in right relationship with God, in right relationship with your neighbor, and this is a thing that ends up celebrating and pointing you back toward Jesus' resurrection. That's the thing you have in common. Right? That's what's made you new humanity. Because if you're not in Christ, it doesn't matter how rich you were, or how poor you were, or how holy you thought you were, right? Only in Jesus' death and resurrection do we become part of the new humanity, part of that new creation that began with the resurrection. And in, in Jesus' new world, everyone's around the table as equals, right? So if your worship doesn't reflect that, it's not worship. You're just eating juice and crackers. Hope they taste good. I don't think I don't think there's anything wrong with with in-home stuff. Um, and there is. Oh yeah. Well, and 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 imagine that, right? In Corinth, you're talking about ten to twenty people in a house church. Meh, twenty to thirty maybe. We'll be generous, right? Assume some of those rich people had nice big houses. Okay. Well, and we know for we know that in Corinth there were multiple house churches that all kind of had different leaders, and that was that was part of the division. You can imagine that, right? If Beaver Creek Church in the Nazarene did not have this nice, beautiful, big building, and we were all meeting in groups of thirty or so, I mean, avoiding avoiding clickishness is is nearly impossible. Okay, um, but the the problem that Paul was talking about in this particular passage is not so much the house church A versus house church B. It's within house church A. They're not. I mean, we'll we'll get to the other stuff later, right? We we gotta. I mean, we gotta get the first. We gotta get this these ducks in a row first. Um. Now we also know from uh, the first chapter of First Corinthians that the the individual house churches were also having problems. But I mean, this particular thing. I mean, this this is an internal. You know, uh, if you if you read, uh, I think it's it's right after this because he goes into discussion of spiritual gifts. You find that when they got into the worship time. It was just chaos. People were, you know, if I had a teaching or you had a word of prophecy or that person wanted to speak in a tongue, it was just all happening at once and it was totally chaotic and there was no order. And Paul's like, look, all y'all care about is looking like you're the holiest person in the room. Stop it. Like, sit down, wait your turn. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. Right? And then, then he goes into a big discussion of spiritual gifts and he's like, you know, everyone thinks their gift's the best, but I'll, I'll tell you, you know, faith, hope, and love remain forever. And the greatest is love. Love. If you don't love, and then this is this is the famous wedding verse, right? If you don't love, then you're just a clanging gong, right? If I have faith, then because uh, if I have faith, if I speak in the tongues of angels, if I do this, if I do that, you're going through all these gifts that they were all apparently bragging about, but I don't have love, totally a waste of time. The only thing that matters in the church of God is love. That 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 and and not not the sentimental Valentine's Day card love. The love that Jesus says, greater love has no one than that he would lay down his life for his friends, which is the love that's celebrated in the communion meal. That's why, that's why communion is the central picture of the worship, right? And so Paul comes back and he's like, you, you guys, you're just a mess. Everything you're doing is about puffing yourself up, not giving yourself away to the people around you. Yeah, shame on you. Shame on you. So, so yeah, uh, back to your initial question of, you know, should we go back to a small group or a house church model? I mean, for me, this is why the small group experience is so vital. Uh, I love Sunday mornings. I mean, all of you probably know that about me, right? Um, I enjoy that time of corporate worship that we have together. But the reality is um, our humans were only created to be able to have about 150 or so meaningful connections. That's what anthropologists have kind of figured that out. That's why up until very recently in human history, over 90% of the population lived in these little villages because that was that was what that's what works. And the city is kind of a weird modern phenomenon that doesn't work all that well. I mean, where's the crime rate the highest? Where do we find the most suicides and all that? It's in cities because there's so much dehumanization and depersonalization. And so 
in a room of 300 or so people, like we have on Sunday morning, you kind of have at least two, if not three or four big kind of groups of people, and that shouldn't be a bad thing. I mean, it's it's your brain, you can't be best friends with 300 people. Like, it's not, you can try. Uh, you know, I'm about the most extroverted person that I know, and I can't be friend, best friends with 300. I try all the time. Because um, I love new friends. I'm like, new friends, hey, tell me your entire life story, and I'll tell you mine. Um, but the reality is, we can't, like, we can't maintain that many meaningful connections. And so when we, when our church worship experience is limited to these large scale groups of people, uh, we miss something. We miss something really vital. Uh, and, and actually, I don't know how many of you have been a part of small churches. The last church I was at, I had the privilege of being there when we crossed the 150 person threshold. And there's a really interesting, I don't know how many of you have ever had that experience in a church that you were but it was, you know, no one in the church is going to be mad when your church goes from 150 to 300, which is what happened during the time that I was at the last church I was at. Okay, that's, everyone's like, woo, it grew, and it's nice, and there's all these new faces and all that. What you heard from all of the people who had been a part of that church when it was smaller was just this sort of sadness. And they said all over and over, they said, it just was nice when you knew everyone. And I love seeing all, they were like, I love seeing all the new faces. I love, I love it, I love it, I love it. But it was just nice when you knew everyone. And that can only happen when your group is less than about 150 or so. Um, and so in a church like ours, where we have about 1,000 or 1,200 people who come here at least once or twice a month, um, it's not practical. It's not realistic. God didn't design us so that you would be intimately connected with 1,200 other people. Don't worry. Okay? <laughs> but that's why the smaller group experience is so important. That's why if you want to experience real meaningful community and growth, it has to happen in these smaller contexts. It just has to. Um, that's, that's, and that's what we see in the scriptures. That's why the house church things worked so well when they worked so well. Um, that's why Jesus had 12, right? He didn't have 500. When he had 5,000, he fed them all and sent them home, right? <laughs> and then they, yeah, yeah, they tried to follow him and he was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to walk, I'm going to cut across the water where you can't follow me just to get away from this crowd, right? Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, that's what you see. You see that, that, that small is, small is the way it's supposed to work and that's the way it's meaningful. And that's what we see in the scriptures over and over and over. So, okay. Uh, we are running out of time, but we're going to press forward because I really want to get to this. We're going to spend at least 10 minutes on, on this discussion and we'll end with communion. Uh, so what we talked about last week, uh, one of the big things we talked about was these other guys. Right, was the fact that the Bible never says that these other gods don't exist, but, but it said don't worship them because they're false. They can't actually give you life. And so if we're talking about Jesus as our God and finding life in Christ and sharing table with Jesus, we need to ask, well, what are the other options today? Because nearly none of us would ever think about worshiping Thor. Right? Nearly none of us would ever think about trying out Baal or any of the other various uh, pagan gods. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things in our culture, our culture, I mean, in all cultures, but we'll just talk about our culture, okay, this is where we are, that become idols for us. So I want to read this quote from Andy Crouch again. It's from his Playing God book. We looked at it last week. And then I want to read the quote at the bottom of the page, which is from a fictional book called American Gods, uh, because I think, it, I think it's a really fun, interesting way to help us get at what it means to worship something, if it's not necessarily just singing its songs, or offering its sacrifices in a temple, okay? So, Andy Crouch says, An idol advances a claim about the ultimate nature of reality that is ultimately mistaken. Anything that advances an ultimate claim about the nature of reality that's ultimately mistaken is an idol. Doesn't matter if it's a statue or not. And since the creator God is the ultimate meaning of the world, an idol is a representation of a false god. Again, not necessarily a statue, but just any false god. Implicitly or explicitly, all idols represent a challenge and a counterclaim to the identity and character of the true creator God. Like the serpent in the garden, they all raise the question of the creator God's truthfulness and goodness. They cause us to question whether God is really true and good. Subtly or directly suggesting that the creator God is neither good or neither true nor good. So an idol is anything that does that in our lives. Anything that, again, directly or subtly, I think most of us in here probably need to be more uh, cautious of the subtlety. Right? Someone who directly causes us to question whether God is good, we're probably pretty good at saying, well, we're fine. You know, we believe God is good and true. But it's the things that subtly get at us, that come from the side where we're not paying attention. So, 
Uh, this this little uh, quote down here is from a book called American Gods. It's a big, sprawling sort of fantasy epic, and it's set in the modern world. And the premise of the book is that anywhere a god has been worshipped, that god exists. And so America is lousy with gods because we've had so many different cultures over here. So there's, I mean, every god you can imagine lives in America because they were worshipped here at one time or another. And Odin, the father of Thor, the, the all-father with the ravens and the eye patch, Anthony Hopkins in the movies, if you saw him, uh, he is marshalling all of the old order gods, the Egyptian gods and the African gods and the Greek gods and all these different gods, to battle against the new gods of America that he says are coming up and are, are driving out all of the old gods. And so you have all of these, so throughout the book you get to meet some of the new gods. And, and, and it's fascinating some of the conversations that end up happening around them. So I've given you one of them here. It's between the main character, whose name is Shadow. Uh, he's a human who gets recruited by Odin to help him organize all this. And Shadow's in a hotel one night, and he turns on the TV, and it's an episode of I Love Lucy. And all of a sudden, the god of television takes over Lucille Ball and talks to him through the TV set. And so this is the conversation. She says, I'm the idiot box. I'm the TV. I'm the all-seeing eye in the world. I'm the boob tube. I'm the little shrine the family gathers to adore. You're the television? Or someone in the television, Shadow asks? Lucy responds, the TV's the altar. I'm what the people are sacrificing to. What do they sacrifice? Asked Shadow. Their time, mostly, said Lucy. Sometimes each other. Then she winked. A big old I love Lucy wink. You're a god? Said Shadow. Lucy smirked and took a little ladylike puff of her cigarette and said, you could say that. Okay, so I'm going to give you about five minutes. I want you to discuss those questions right there. Um, and then we'll come back together and spend a couple of minutes talking about what really are some of these new American gods that we should really probably be careful about. And we'll continue this discussion in the next couple of weeks as well, so don't worry that we're running low on time. What were some of the things you identified as uh, American gods? Were there any consistent patterns or things that everyone kind of agreed about? Money. Okay. Jobs. Money. Work. What else? Okay. Any kind of success. Okay. Good. Yeah. Family. Okay. Family. Anyone go with religion? Figured that'd be some low-hanging fruit. Low-hanging fruit after earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it's weird to think that the ritual of church could get in the way of God, but that's exactly what we saw with the Pharisees, right? It's exactly what we saw in the prophets with the temple rituals. We shouldn't think that religion can't be an idol. Um, okay, so we are going to talk more about this idolatry issue over the next couple of weeks. This is this is really getting us to the core of, uh, of the end of the class. But we're also, this, this year for Lent, the series that we're doing as a whole church is called American Gods. And we, we pulled out six idols that we have that we as a staff have, have identified and, and worked through. And so we're going to be spending time as a whole church each week. Uh, work is one of them, uh, talking about why do we chase success? What's that about? Um, family is one of them. Religion is one of them. Uh, so so that, this is going to be something I, I'm, sort of, I'm sort of giving you a sneak peek. Uh, you're, you're, getting, you're going to be way ahead of the curve uh, when it comes to the Lent series. So I, it is going to be good. And, and again, this is, this is the heart of a lot of stuff. When you, when you read through the Old Testament, one of the most consistent problems that Israel faced over and over and over was a problem of idolatry. They kept putting their faith in the wrong places. Uh, and, and the metaphor that would resonate with tonight, they kept sharing the table with the wrong gods. Right? Um, they kept wanting to be seen in the presence of the wrong gods. Right? They kept wanting to be associated publicly with the wrong gods. And that had, over and over and over again, dire consequences for them. Because, ultimately, these gods cannot follow through on their promises. These gods cannot bring us life. And the same is true for the American gods today. Um, they cannot, you know, no amount, of, no amount of success will give you security. Not, not eternally, right? Um, no, amount of, no, no amount of stability in your family will ensure that tomorrow will continue to be stable. Right? We, had a, we had an evangelist here. Years back, Dr. Mann, he had family, and it was, it was interesting because that's basically what his whole sermon was about, mm. you know. 
and he kept going. You know, do you have money to pay your bills? It's all about him. Mm -hmm. It's not about the bill he wrote. Mm -hmm. It's about him. And when you stop to think about when you're faced with a problem or whatever, you think that it really is about him and only him. Yeah. It changes your perspective yeah. and your priorities. Yeah. And it really does. I mean, when you really take some time to inventory, what are the idols in your life that you're really truly tempted by? You know, don't worry about everyone else's and, you know, what kids these days are doing or whatever. I mean, really take some time to look at your own and, and your own heart. It, it gets really challenging because they wouldn't be idols if they weren't tempting for us to follow. Well, it's always easier to see everybody else's. Yeah, true. Very true. So um, I wanted to close tonight with communion. We spent so much time talking about it. It's, it's such an appropriate response. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to reread Paul's instructions for us that come out of 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to pray for us. And then I'm going to invite you forward. We're just going to do the, the intinction method, which is grab one, dip it in the, in the uh, cup, and then you can just take it with you. Uh, once you've finished, you can feel free to hang out and, and talk or uh, just kind of silently reflect. Uh, if you need to go, though, as well, you can just be dismissed. We won't, we won't pray again after we are finished with the communion meal. So uh, the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about Exodus and Exile and what that looks like, of course, not just in the ancient world, but then also today like we've been doing. And at the heart of both Exodus and Exile are problems of idolatry. So the, again, I, we didn't get as much time as I was hoping we would tonight to go talk about the American gods, but we're going to continue to come back to them. So uh, let's, let's read this together, and then I will pray over us, and then you can come forward and receive the communion meal. Paul said, I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. God, as we approach your table tonight, we are humbled. We are overwhelmed by what it means that you would present a sacrifice for us and welcome us to your table. That we did not even have to bring you an animal this time, but you provided your very own body and blood to be that sacrifice. Um, as we come forward tonight and we receive the bread and we dip it in the juice, we ask that they would become for us so much more than just juice and crackers. That they would become for us your body and your blood. That they would knit us together as people who follow you, who are being conformed into your image, and that you would remind us again through this very tangible act of eating together that we are the church of God here in Beaver Creek, Ohio, and that you have called us to reach everyone who is far from you, and that you never gave us this church so that we could serve the institution, but that you gave us the church so that we could reach those who are far from you, and particularly that's those, those 45,000 people who live within five miles of this building who don't have any kind of a relationship with the church. We want to be the church for them. We want to do everything that we can to connect and engage them with the good news that you rose from the dead and that the entire fabric of reality has been rewritten and that now death is no longer the only option for them but life. So as we come forward and receive these things, let us hold all of that in our hearts. And as we leave from this place, let us leave in a spirit of community and unity and love. We pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus.